The gospel reading for today is John 2, verses 13 through 25. It's the sermon text, and it's found on page 1054 of your pew Bible. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Y'all hear me? Great. Um, we just sung a song that was written, Arise My Soul, Rise. I think I don't have my bulletin. I think that's the, the title of the hymn we just sung by Charles Wesley. Um, I grew up a United Methodist. If you don't know what that means, that's totally okay. Um, but John Wesley was kind of the founder of Methodism, and his brother was Charles. They were kind of like a you know, power siblings uh, in the church in the 1700s. And Charles Wesley wrote a bunch of hymns, um, a bunch of very popular hymns. One of his most popular hymns was one written to children, and it was titled, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. And I think that's the image um, that the church has mostly focused on of Jesus. Jesus as gentle, meek, and many times mild. In uh, the 19th century, the British author G.K. Chesterton wrote about the surprise that someone might have if they had no idea who Jesus was except for what they heard presented by churches. And he said, the truth is that the image of Christ in the churches that is almost entirely mild is that he's almost entirely mild and merciful. It is the image of Christ in the Gospels that is a good many other things as well. If someone new to the Jesus of the Bible started reading in John, our passage today would come, or at least it would seem like it's completely out of left field. This doesn't seem like Jesus, does it? In many of the ways we use the word Christ-like today, Christ doesn't seem very Christ-like, depending on how you understand that, does he? How in the world does this fit into Jesus' ministry and his mission? It doesn't seem, maybe right off the bat, like it does. So we're looking at a passage today that because of this seeming kind of surprise and the supposed out-of-characterness of this, 
Because of that, it's been interpreted and used and misused in a lot of different ways. And I'm not going to touch on all of those different ways, but I, w- I want to focus this morning on three questions. What made Jesus angry? What does that say about the heart of God? And what does that have to do with us? In other words, is, is, is Jesus gentle and meek and mild? See, more than that, what, 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 what is Jesus? And just to give a little spoiler alert here, if you didn't already guess, I'm going to argue that this wasn't just some aberration in Jesus' ministry. This, this wasn't just some random one-off thing where Jesus was having a bad day and something set him off in the temple. This was completely on-brand, on-mission for Jesus, and it points to the reason Jesus came, and it reflects the heart of God. So let's, uh, let's get into this. If you want to open your Bibles, I think that would be helpful this morning. Um, if you want to look at, uh, we're in chapter 2, verse 13. So what, what was the activity in the temple that set Jesus off? Let's, let's start at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there's a little bit of I think foreshadowing here, the Passover in John is super important. If you've read the whole book of John and you remember some of that, you you might remember that um, it's a big focus, especially at the end of Jesus' life. Um, So Jesus was just in Capernaum with his family and disciples, and he went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And what this, one thing that this should tell us is that Jesus was being a faithful Jew. For generations and generations, Jews had gone up you know, so in the Psalms, we have uh, a group of Psalms that's called the Psalms of Ascent. Those were songs to sing, at, to worship as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple um, for the different feasts. And so um, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And I think there's a lot of symbolism in that, a lot of foreshadowing. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that as like, you know, when you have maybe a junior high English teacher, I'm sorry, English teachers, I know we might have a couple of those here, um, but, you know, how you're reading a story and there's, like, just some random little detail and they're like, oh, well, you know, she was wearing purple that day, so that harkens back to page 456, where it's not one of those things, like, John is very explicit about connecting the Passover with what Jesus is doing as the Lamb of God. It's very explicit in John. And so he's, he's, he's pointing out that Jesus' celebrations of the Passover, and he, he talks about the Passover three times, so Jesus' three Passovers each year of his ministry in John, he's pointing out that it's nothing less than the slaughter of lambs, the celebration of the place in Exodus where the slaughter of lambs are used to save the children of God. It's the, it's the primary salvation text in the Old Testament. And it's being celebrated by the very Lamb of God who would be slaughtered to save the children of God and make death pass their door frames forever. So, big foreshadowing here. So, we should expect a lot from here, from, from this uh, passage um, about Jesus' celebration of the Passover. So, let's look at verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So I want to point out some things at this point. Uh, There's a few ways that I think this has been misinterpreted. So there's no real indication here 
that this is an issue of money being exchanged or the sellers being greedy, them being, you know, they're just money grubbers wanting to make as much money as they can, maybe even by deceit or something like that, or of the money changers cheating people out of their money. I don't think this was even an issue of making, you know, a first century schnucks and selling animals here um, just as a kind of grocery store. When you look at the context of this, they were, they were providing a needed service. So people were coming to Jerusalem, they were coming to the temple from, you know, all corners of the world and they were needing to sacrifice animals. There was still the sacrificial system in the temple. That was a way they worshipped. They needed animals to worship. And so it was very hard for people coming from faraway places to bring animals with them. And so they were providing a service. You could come to the temple and buy your sacrificial oxen and sheep and pigeons. So it actually makes sense that there would be a supply of these things here and for there to be money changers to, you know, make change for people buying sacrificial animals. It sounds pretty helpful, doesn't it? If you don't want to, you know, carry your oxen all that way. So what was the issue here? I think the answer is actually in the first three words, in the temple. So there's at least two words, um, two Greek words that are used in the Bible for temple. One of those words referred to the inner temple. That's the place where, you know, the Jews came and um, they would um, make their sacrifices. Uh, the priests would make sacrifices. And mu much of the worship, the act of uh, worship, um, especially for uh, feasts like the Passover, was done. The other word for temple is probably a reference to the outer parts of the temple that were specifically designated as the court of the Gentiles. This was a place where people that were not ethnic Jews could still come and worship the Lord. So Gentile worshipers of God from the nations, um, they were many times called God-fearers, would be able to come and worship in this part of the temple. And that's the word that's used here. When it says in the temple, it's talking about those outer parts where people who were not ethnic Jews who were not Israel could come and worship God and pray to God, meet with God in this temple, which was the special place of meeting with God. This was an act of, act of love in God allowing anyone to come and to pray to him, to worship him in this special place where he, he, met, with, um, he met with people. The problem was not that they were selling animals to sacrifice. The problem was where they were doing it. It was probably very convenient for them. Come in the temple, outer courts, buy your sacrificial animals, move into the inner courts, and made some sort of human sense, at least. It would have been less convenient, less comfortable to have it somewhere else. So they were doing it in the one place that God designated for the rest of the world to come worship him. Here Jesus said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. In the gospels you might remember that Jesus adds that his father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So say a Roman loved the Lord, he's convinced that the God of the Bible is the true God and he comes to the temple to worship and he starts praying but all he can hear are the sounds of sheep and oxen and pigeons 
and trades happening. Like, sometimes, you know, we love children in here. We want children to, you know, be uh, a part of this service. But even my kids, like, they're going to be throwing stuff. And a lot of times, um, many of you have picked up, like, little sippy cups that, um, you know, our kids have dropped on the floor and handed it back to us when our kids have been in here. And it, sometimes those things, I'm not saying we're always distracted in worship and, and we do you know, love kids in the worship service, but there are things, even by adults, that can distract us. We can be distracted. We can be distracted by our phones in here. There's so many things um, that can distract us, but imagine trying to do that. Imagine trying to worship. Imagine trying to pray in a place where there's sheep and oxen and pigeons and um, people buying and exchanging money and trying to yell loud enough to hear uh, their patrons and the, um, what the prices are. This was Passover. This was the, the time when tons of people would have been coming to the temple to celebrate Passover and worship. So imagine maybe like a Walmart on Black Friday. I've, I went one time just to like people watch because I thought it would be fun, and it wasn't. Um, but imagine Walmart on a Black Friday, um, but it wasn't just like this wasn't just that, right? Because... It wasn't just buying and selling things, it was animals. So imagine Walmart, Black Friday, and then a bunch of farmers just show up with these like horse trailers or whatever they carry animals in, and then they just let a bunch of farm animals loose in the Walmart on Black Friday. That's what was going on in the temple. And then imagine this is your place where you're designated to pray. I don't think, I mean... I don't want to assume anything. Most of us are probably not ethnic Jews in this room. I think sometimes we like forget that. We read scripture. I mean, I think, I, I think we kind of put ourselves in the place of the main characters sometimes. It could also be because Paul calls us, you know, um, basically circumcised of heart. So we're, 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 we're Jews spiritually. But I think we're, we forget sometimes. We're not the main character. We, we were, if you were in Jerusalem at this time... Your only place to pray, your only place to worship in the temple would have been Black Friday, Walmart meets Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Imagine trying to pray in that situation. And at this point, you can probably start to see what makes Jesus angry. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the word for zeal, literally zealous, it's a, it's a Greek word. It was an onomatopoeic word, which means it sounds like the thing it refers to, that is referring to water bubbling over. Like it, it's supposed to kind of sound like water bubbling over from boiling. It comes from, the word zealous here comes from the word to boil. It means Jesus was heated. In other places in the New Testament, it refers to the fury of a fire. Jesus is consumed by deep passion. For God's house to be what God's house is supposed to be. A place for his people, his kids, his sons and daughters to come and meet with him. And that ends up leading him to violence. You might notice I used that word in the sermon title here. I'm not saying violence as in people. There's no indication that he was like actually whipping people. He probably made the whip to drive the animals out. Maybe to you know, get the sellers out by fear of possibly losing their product running out of the temple. But he's using force to turn over tables and to 
whip and pour out the money changer's money. And by the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of violence, behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something, that's violence. Right now, I feel like I need to take kind of a a needed detour, a small, small but necessary rabbit trail. Um, it's a rabbit trail, but I, I do think it, it's, it's kind of necessary with this passage. So righteous anger. When you hear the phrase righteous anger in a Christian context, people are talking about it. Chances are you're going to be talking about this passage. You're, you're at least going to hear this story referenced. I've heard this passage used as support for people who are always angry, who are marked by anger, um, who speak and sometimes even act in um, violent ways out of that as well. well. You know, Jesus flipped the table. He flipped the table, so I have every right to be angry and act out of that. And I think there's even a faction of the church that says um, specifically about masculinity, this is what masculinity is supposed to be, and ignores the other, all, all the rest of um, who Jesus was. On the other extreme, I've also heard this reference in arguments that it's always wrong to be angry, and act out of anger. Like, yeah, Jesus flipped the tables, but he was God. And so he was able to handle his righteous anger. And you are not God, so you cannot. You should never be angry. You should never act out of anger. But I think this is actually, that this can show us a model of how to have and act out of righteous anger. With, when we take this with other scriptures, we can be told how to have it and act in it without sinning. So in Psalm 4.4, and, and Paul actually re- repeats this in Ephesians, it says, be angry, and that's actually a, an imperative. It's saying, be angry, and another imperative, do not sin. Be angry, do not sin. So I, I want to quickly give, because this is, again, a little rabbit trail off my point, but four quick guiding principles for righteous anger that we can see from Jesus. So, just to list them, and I'll explain them, but four, righteous, or four guiding principles for righteous anger. One, it has to be righteous. Two, it has to be rooted in love. Three, it has to be prayerfully pondered. And four, it has to be done within, it has to be acted out within authority. So one, righteous anger has to be righteous. Thank you, Sam. That was very helpful. Um, it has to be right. It has to be concerned with some grievance of or departure from God's goodness, righteousness, and justice. When we see injustice, when we see denials of human dignity, when we see just ways that God's goodness is being infringed upon, we, there's a sense in which we should be angry. Jesus was right to be angry. And they were, keep, they were keeping God's kids from praying and worshiping. Righteous anger, too, must be accompanied by other affections rooted in love. If all you are is angry, if, all, if you're just seeing red, you're probably not going to act righteously and you need to slow down. It's talked about a lot in Proverbs. We see Jesus righteously turning over ta- uh, tables, over this, but in other places, um, you know, this was happening in Jerusalem. He's angry about what's happening in the temple in Jerusalem, but in other places, Jesus laments. We see him grieving over Jerusalem. See that in Matthew 23. So Jesus has anger, but it's not an anger that's rooted in something dark or sinful. It's anger that's rooted in love for God and his people. Three, righteous anger must be, acting in righteous anger must, must be prayerfully pondered. So the f- full verse in um, Psalm 4.4 that I refer- referenced said, be angry and do not sin, but 
What follows that is ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So this story might read as an unpondered, angry reaction by Jesus, but just consider these facts. Um, Consider this context. Jesus went to Passover in the temple every year he was alive. He's a faithful Jew. He went to Jerusalem every year he was alive. And historians tell us that this was happening for quite, this was a normal thing in the temple. So Jesus had seen this going on for some time. I doubt if he saw it before, that this was the first time it made him angry, and Jesus was in constant prayer. We, we know from the scripture, Jesus was constantly withdrawing to be with the Father. He's constantly in prayer. So this is it's a little bit of an, an assumption, but it's a biblically informed, safe assumption that Jesus had been angry about this already, and he prayerfully pondered his response. That's what the text is pointing towards. Acting, number four, in righteous anger must be done within our authority. So that's a part of the do not sin part, right? Our action in righteous anger ceases to be righteous when we sin in our anger. We are bound to the word of God, which tells us things like, don't take revenge, don't avenge yourself, leave that to the Lord. Tells us things like, obey our governmental leaders. And, you know, there's exceptions to that. This can get complicated. I'm thinking of things like the civil rights movement, right? But that's a different conversation. Jesus said, this is my father's house. He had the authority. This is my family home. He has authority over what happens in the temple. He's given authority. And keeping God's kids from him in God's home was not going to fly with Jesus. And at this point, rabbit trail over. That's what they were doing. That's why Jesus is angry here. He was so hot with fiery passion for God's house. His house that was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. A place for people who love God. A place for God's sons and daughters to come meet in warm, intimate fellowship with their heavenly father. And so what was the practical effect of this marketplace being in the temple? Nah. You can't come to God today. You can't come to the heavenly father today. I don't know about you, but if you put a locked door between me and my kids, I'm going to do my best impression of a cop on Law and Order. You know, I'm, I'm going to think back to all those episodes of Law and Order that I've seen of, you know, people kicking. They probably don't even do it correctly, right? But I'm, I'm going to do that, probably, you know, break some different parts of myself. I'm an old man now. I'm 30. But um, I'm going to do my best to to remove that obstacle between me and my kids. Tara, too. She's one of the, if you talk to her, she's You'll probably say she's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but get in between her and Kuiper and Mava, there's going to be problems. In Hosea, when God's talking about his children being endangered and far from him in sin, he says, I'm like a mother bear whose cubs are being kept from me, and I'll rip apart anything that stands in between me and my cubs. And that's what's happening right here. The sellers and the animals are practically, like with their animals, are practically telling God's kids, no, you're not going to see your father today. So he makes a whip. The money changers are standing in the way of him and his kids, so he scatters their coins and sends them scrambling. The tables are keeping his sons and daughters from him, so he turns them over. People reading this and thinking, oh, this doesn't sound like the Jesus I know, then I don't think you get what this is about. He doesn't take kindly to anything trying to keep God's children from him. Ask the Pharisees. 
Read the other parts of, of what Jesus says in the Gospels. Read about how he says if, if you're trying to lead a child of God away from him, it's better to wear a necklace of a millstone and be thrown into the ocean. It's better for that than you keep God's kids from him. Oh, this doesn't sound very on mission for Jesus. Well, his mission was to rec- rescue us. It was to bring us back to God in full relationship with him. To save us from anything that would keep us from God. That's what he's doing here. Verse 18, look with me. So, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And again, like I referenced earlier, you need authority. to. If you're, if you're going to do this in the temple, you better have permission, authority from God. And so they're demanding a sign. Show me, give me a miracle or something that shows me that you have the God-given authority to act like this in the temple. And Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So what's the sign? Destroy this temple. He's pointing forward. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. He's connecting the work that he just did in the temple to his coming death and resurrection. So how's it, how's it connected? He's saying, I just cleared, I, I ransacked, I cleansed, whatever you want to call it, the temple... You want to sign for my authority to do that? Destroy the temple. So there's an escalation here. Destroy the temple. Jesus just drove the merchants and the animals and he poured out the coins. And he cleared the way for God's people to come worship him. He turned the tables over that were keeping God's kids from him. But that was certainly not the root issue of what separates us from God, is it? It's not just tables. Ultimately, it's our sin that separates us from God. Our sin, and that's what's referenced in verse 23 to 25. If you want to look there, there's some uh, wordplay there. It says, um, basically, because those words for believe and trust are the same root words. So it's, it's basically saying, they trusted Jesus' Jesus's power when he did signs at the Passover feast. They trusted Jesus' power to do signs, but Jesus didn't trust their trust. Because he knew what was in them. Jesus knows our sin problem on a deep, deep level. He's without sin, but he understands our sin problem on a deep, deep level. He's been seeing it since the beginning of time, since, since the beginning of um, the fall when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Our sin, your sin, does not surprise Jesus. It's the reason he came. He's coming to the temple to turn tables that kept the Gentiles coming from, worship, from worshiping God. And that was a pointer to the reason for God coming to us in Jesus in the first place, to turn the tables on anything that keeps us from God. Jesus' atonement in taking the wrath of God for sin, God's righteous frown like we just sung earlier, taking the wrath of God on sin in our place is him turning the tables, if you will, on the sin that kept us from God. Jesus' torment and shameful death on a cross turned the tables on any torment and shame that Satan can throw at you. Uses your sin to keep you from God. Jesus turned the tables. Jesus' death is turning the tables on the death 
that keeps us from God. When the Psalms speak of death, they, they speak about it as something that's a separator. It separates us from God. And so the Psalms have this, even before, long before Jesus, the Psalms, the psalmists have this hope, this definite certain hope that because God loves us and because God wants to be with us, death will not keep us from him. That God will do something to death to keep us with him in his presence. So, and just as Jesus turned the tables, keeping God's kids from him in the temple, Jesus and his death and resurrection, which is what he's talking about him here, turned the tables on Satan and sin and death. And what did that accomplish? In our passage, he calls his body this temple. He's comparing himself, his body, to the temple the place where people meet with God. But there's something interesting here. I don't know if you remember um, a few minutes ago when I said there's two words for temple in Greek. The word we heard earlier for temple when it said in the temple, verse 14, that was talking about the outer courts, the, the place for the Gentiles to come and worship God. Well, the word Jesus uses here for temple is the second word. It's the inner temple. The place where the only, only the true ethnic Jews can go. The place where the sacrifices happen. The place that the Holy of Holies was. The place where God most closely was said to dwell with his people. Destroy this inner temple and I will raise this inner temple up. You thought my work of turning the tables in the temple so that the Gentiles could come and worship in the outer courts was something? I'm going to turn the tables that keep all of us, the Gentiles, the Jews, from God in a full and final way so anyone Anywhere that trusts in me, that believes in my gospel, will have full and final access to the very presence of the living God. Jesus is our temple, and we worship and we pray and have intimate fellowship with God through our living temple who's destroyed and raised up. And in doing that, Jesus takes us into the presence of God, the sweet presence of God where there is fullness of joy. However, even though we have a full and complete access to God because Jesus did overturn the tables of sin and death, we're very good at putting our own tables up, aren't we? An obvious, obvious uh, application here is to ask, what are the tables that are getting in the way of you coming to the Father in sweet fellowship and in, in prayer and worship to spend time in His presence? What are those tables for you right now? I think sometimes we do this, you know, table setting up way and Ways that are subtle. For them, beginning of this passage, it was convenient, it was comfortable to have animals in there. It was comfortable to sell animals in the outer courts. And yet it starved people of prayer. It negated the very reason for the temple. What are the things in your life that maybe they're not sinful? Maybe in some cases they're even good. In some contexts they're even good that are distracting you from prayer? What are things that by comfort and convenience are, are inch by inch withdrawing you from the presence of God? One possible, and I'm not going to speak to this, you know, you, you can apply this in your own way, but one possible answer for us in our context here that kind of dovetails in with um, the beginning of our passage today is consumerism. We buy so much stuff. I buy so much stuff. I... We think of this so much. We think of stuff, stuff, stuff so much in ways that would probably shock and possibly disgust the New Testament apostles who wrote that. They would have 
Their minds would be blown if they saw all the stuff that we have. And I think as a, and it's not, stuff isn't, shirts aren't bad and clothes aren't bad and cars aren't bad and they can be good. But there are ways that I think, ways that I think subconsciously, not subconsciously, but subtly and and slowly as a slow boil, they, they take us away from the presence of God. And I think as a subset of that, we think about technology, right? It's a part of our consumerism. I think we haven't thought enough on the whole as a Western church about the effect that that has on our prayer and our worship and our intimacy with the Lord. Again, I'm not trying to make barriers, make things sin that aren't sin or put up more rules like the Pharisees do. I just want to ask the question, are we, are we thinking about this enough? Are, are, are we being distanced from the Lord? Another way we do this is by actual real sin, especially the sins that are habitual, that seem to be maybe even ingrained into our personalities and identities, especially the sins that threaten to choke our relationship with the Lord of all joy and int- intimacy and strength. Jesus emptied sin of its guilt and its power and its effective death, but we still live with it, don't we? We struggle with it. We wrestle with it. And for some of you, what I said about the awesome and radical nature of our access to the Heavenly Father might have sounded to some of you like an irrelevant, pie-in-the-sky, fuzzy, abstract idea to you this morning because sin and its effects and its broken, and the brokenness from sin have beaten you down so badly over the years. For some of you, the description of the sweet communion with God that Jesus offers to us maybe sounds kind of like a ghost that, you know, it hauntingly reminds you of past times when you used to feel the presence of God, when you used to feel the joy and the beauty of spending time with Him, when He, when he used to be sweet to you. But brothers and sisters, can I remind you of Jesus? Not the Jesus as many times we falsely imagine him, a Jesus surprised and put off by your sin and your brokenness, a Jesus who gradually turns his nose up at each and every one of your habitual sins until he can't see you anymore, a Jesus who is mildly unaffected and relatively uncaring and aloof at your struggles and sins. Now let me remind you of the real Jesus, the Jesus we see In John, the Jesus we see in the Bible, the Jesus gentle and lowly in heart who runs toward, not away from, sin, sinners and sufferers and strugglers. The Jesus who delights in healing, the Jesus who in fierce, zealous anger overturns tables keeping the sons and the daughters of God away from their heavenly Father and who meekly lays his life down, voluntarily submitting himself to death I almost don't want to say this because it does sound kind of preachy, this analogy I'm making, but brothers and sisters, he can still turn tables. He can turn any tables keeping you from God. I believe he's still turning tables, and he delights to do that. He loves to do that. You will not wrestle with sin and brokenness and death forever. There are only two places in the New Testament where Jesus gets violent. One is right here in our passage. The other is in another book written by John in Revelation where John sees Jesus coming back in war clothes, dipped in the blood of his enemies, making war and violently overthrowing sin and death 
and Satan. So who, who is Jesus? See the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, of Wesley's hymn? Or is he violent and angry? We see Jesus angry and violent in the first half of our passage, turning the tables that kept the Gentiles from worshiping God. And in the second half of our passage, we see Jesus referencing when he'd meekly submit himself to death to turn the tables that kept God's children from him. When righteous anger and violence are what it takes to turn the tables that keep the Gentiles from God in the temple, Jesus does that. When meekly submitting himself to a sin-bearing, shame-filled death on a cross is what it takes to turn the tables on the sin and death that have kept humanity from God, Jesus does that. He is gentle, and he is lowly, and he is meek, but he isn't tame. Pastor Mike referenced this earlier um, in, a, in a recent sermon, but I'm going to use it again anyway, because I think it fits perfectly with the passage. In uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis depicts Jesus as the Lion of Aslan. Maybe I shouldn't say that. It's a spoiler alert. Um, but on discovering he really is a lion, the question is asked by Lucy, that he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And later Mr. Beaver adds, he's not a tame lion. He's not tame. Jesus isn't tame. If there's one thing Jesus isn't, it's mild. Insofar as mild means a lack of severe or great emotion or affection, it says in the dictionary, Jesus is not mild. He is not mild in his passion for God's glory. He is not mild in his anger and his grief over sin and those who keep others from God. He is not mild in his love for the sons and daughters of God and in his mission that they be one with the Father once and for all. He is not mild, brother and sister in Christ. He is not mild in his love for you and in his desire to turn any tables that keep you from running into the arms of the Father. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you are not dispassionate, that you are not aloof, but that your zealousness is shown to us, your heart is shown to us by Jesus, who turns the tables that keep us from you, God. Whether that's really in the temple when he was here, when, when um, the merchants were keeping people from praying to you, or whether that's metaphorically and how Jesus in his death for us saved us and removed any barriers that keep us from running to you and from your presence, God. We thank you for that this morning, and we pray this week that you would help us to be in your presence in a joyful and sweet and precious way, because that's what Jesus bought for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.